Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 31, Brush with Georgia. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Diet when we diet. Hang it on me wall when we hang it on me wall. (laughs) And today I'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 18, Brush with Greatness. First aired on April the 11th, 1991. Again, a two-week gap from our last episode. And I'm going to be talking about Georgia. That's the country in the Caucasus rather than the American state that declared its independence from the Soviet Union on April the 9th, 1991, two days before Brush With Greatness first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So without further ado, or any ado in fact this time, April 11th, 1991. Gareth, I hear you ask, what was number one in the UK hit parade at that stage? Well, calm down, because it was still Chesney Hawks. But at number two, we have James with Sit Down. Oh, brilliant. That rarest of things, a song where the title perfectly describes my reaction to its starting. It was originally released in 1989, when it reached a mere 77 in the chart. Although that version was seven and a half minutes long, so I can see why it didn't take off. I've never heard that version, and you know what? I never have to hear it. (laughs) No. No motivation whatsoever. This version is not only three and a half minutes shorter, but has some lyrical changes as well, and James have made a bit more of a name for themselves when it was released, so it's right version, right time. Oh, yeah. It's a a piece of genius songwriting, even if I'm not that keen on it myself. Um, The song is an absolute doddle to play on an acoustic guitar. You need a a mere three chords Mm -hmm. to do so. It lifts parties and it lends itself well to football chants, such as that currently performed by Liverpool FC fans in tribute to favourite Mo Salah. Oh, yeah. As I heard in the incredibly salubrious tavern Jürgens down on the Strand last <laughs> week. Come clean on this, don't really have too much to say about it. It's, uh, I would imagine our core listenership are more than familiar with Sit Down by James. Yep. Anybody who isn't familiar with James or Sit Down, it would take me <laughs> too long to explain what it is and why it's yeah, yeah. kind well, of... It's just always there, really. Well, I've sung Sit Down by James at a karaoke in Corfu, not that long ago, actually. And James were a staple of like indie clubs when I was growing up, laid especially. Yeah. But, and she only sings when she's on top. It's like, yeah, that's not the real word. It's not the real words, and you know it. I kind of, I, the way I picture James, it's a bit like how I picture the Charlatans as well. It's like they're a good Saturday afternoon at a festival band. Yeah, it's like you've just had your overpriced lunch. You don't want anything too challenging. Probably a bit sleepy. Chuck out the classics, send them home happy. Yeah, they're, a, they're an 8 out of 10 band, I'd say. Yeah. I'd, I'd say James. I'm very fond of them, very much got a soft spot for them. Yeah. I, d- I think I've just got some apathy towards the, this song due to, to overhearing, really. Yeah. Um, some of their later stuff, uh, Tomorrow was really good, She's yeah. a Star. I yeah. think those were both on the same album, whose name escapes me, a bit of a later one, sort of uh, like 90s one. Waltzing Along, that was another good one. Say Something was good. Say Something oh, was very that, yeah, good. Yeah, that's a brilliant yeah. song. Yeah. Um, 
we're just listing da- James songs now. So yes, yes. So I'll just say which my favourite ever James song, which is Sometimes, because that's got a lovely chorus. Oh yeah, forgot about that one. That's one where we're all playing their, their instruments in the sea. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well. There we go. We've listed some James songs yeah. for you. Go, go out and try all of those, but you'll f- only find one on the Spotify playlist, and that's the one I'm sick of. So uh, uh, the US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen rating of 12, but shock horror, it wasn't the highest rated Fox show this week. A football game or something? No, guess again. Married with Children yes. came back? What? Yes. Married with Children. Oh, Okay. <laughs> it's only ever going to be that or football, isn't it? So, uh, yeah. uh, production number was 7F18, and the credited writer is a new face. Oh, is it? Brian K. Roberts, a multi-award winning director, writer, and producer. If it sounds like I'm selling him, it's because a lot of this is taken from his own website. <laughs> uh, he is creative with directing over 500 television programmes in the US and Canada, including Everybody Loves Raymond... The Drew Carey Show and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yeah, that's not that impressive a CV, I have to say. <laughs> On The Simpsons, he worked as a writer, but also an editor, sound editor, and post-production coordinator. But I believe this is the only episode where he's credited as the main writer. As we know, a lot of the same team were involved in writing and rewrites, so he may have contributed more than we can know. Yeah. Um, he also won a Golden Reel Award for his editing work on The Simpsons, although I haven't been able to work out if that's for a single episode or a set of episodes or what. But he did win it, and it was for that. The chalkboard gag is, I will not hide behind the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> yeah, nice. The Fifth, as so often pled, is as follows. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offence to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation." Right, yeah, it, it, it's a mouthful, the Fifth Amendment. I know of the phrase, taking the Fifth, but to be honest, I really don't know what it means. Apart from double jeopardy, I get that. Well, I I think, so, you know, there's the double jeopardy prosecutions that that, that rules out. There's also kind of uh, guaranteeing a right, right to char- trial by jury. But I think when people are pleading the Fifth, particularly in the way that Bart means it on the chalkboard, it's the bit about not being compelled to be a witness against yourself. Ah, I see. Okay. So it's like, if I said what I was doing, it would incriminate me. Yeah. And I don't have to do that. Right, I see. Was it you with the can of spray paint? Take the fifth. Exactly. Got it. Now, that's just my interpretation. If we have any listeners that can interpret American law better than me, then do get in touch. You know the usual ways. Nice one. Uh, And the couch gag is the couch tips over, but Maggie stays in place, dropping onto a cushion that's fallen off of the sofa, and continues to watch TV largely unaffected. But what actually happens? Well, we're straight into the Krusty the Clown show, which somewhat uncharacteristically is filmed on location at the Mount Splashmore water park. His rather shameless promotion, including a crude along with Krusty segment, works a treat on Bart and Lisa, who repeatedly ask Homer to take them there. They ask 17 times that we see, 
But we can assume that if they're watching Krusty at about 5pm and the whole sequence in question, you know, all of the responses therein take about three seconds ago, and Homer is in bed trying to sleep when he gives in. So we'll say, what, six hours passes in that time. Mm-hmm. They've asked the question over 7,000 occasions in oh, the well intervening weird. time. That's some good maths. I can't remember whether I did this or not, but I was going to knock off 45 minutes for dinner. <laughs> Anyway, Homer struggles into his bathing suit and the family immediately gets split up on arrival at the park. Lisa produces some on-cue tears so she and Bart can challenge the raging water of death on the H2WO water slide, whilst Homer just pushes to the front of the line like a jerk. Yes. But the results are very different. The kids have a great time and Homer gets stuck, clogging the slide in a very uncomfortable moment for those of us with claustrophobia. (laughs) Worse still, the other children sent down to unclog him don't get the job done, and the slide has to be closed. The local news gets involved, putting Homer's weight of four to five hundred pounds and bringing unwanted scrutiny onto Krusty. Homer is not five hundred pounds, but he is two hundred and sixty, which is eighteen stone eight pounds, near enough one hundred and eighteen kilos, or thirty-one hogsheads in post-Brexit measurement. <laughs> He decides to go on a diet and goes to the attic to find his exercise gear, including apparently some steroids from Dr. Nick. And we also see a Burns campaign sign from two cars in every car hole. Whilst there, he stumbles across our A-plot, with a number of portraits of Ringo Starr, as painted by Marge, being in the attic. Whilst Homer misunderstands rice cakes, Marge relates the squashing of her dreams by her old art teacher and how she sent a portrait to Ringo himself and never heard back. Lisa suggests Marjorie kindle her artistic side with a course at the community college, and Homer agrees, as long as he doesn't have to do anything. (laughs) Her new teacher, Professor Lombardo, is uniformly enthusiastic about everything except taking praise, including the work of the college janitor. Armed with his Lombardo technique, Marge gets back to work, and her bald Adonis a study of Homer asleep on the sofa in his underwear, gets first prize at the Springfield Art Fair. Just as Mr Burns is coincidentally on the lookout for an artist, having systematically alienated every other artist in town. Homer loses £11 in, well, we don't know how long, but for a gourmand and lush such as himself, that's an achievement regardless of the time. Certainly. For those following at home, he's now at 17 stone 11 pounds, near enough 113 kilo, or 12 Reese Mogs in post-Brexit measurement. <laughs> his appalled donut supplier, who had just bought a boat, is the real loser here, as is Carl, who has lost his proper voice. Yes. Inevitably, Marge takes the Burns gig. Problem being, she's got to make him look beautiful, and that's extremely difficult when he's disrespectful to her and her family, and also very old. She does accidentally spy him in the nip, though, which will be an important plot point in just a second. Meanwhile, somewhere in England, Ringo Starr is working his way through his fan mail and finally gets to Marge's portrait, which he proclaims to be gear. (laughs) And Homer weighs in at 239 pounds, which is 17 stone one pound, around 108 kilos, or 23 broken promises to the people of Ireland that may lead to a disastrous breakdown in peace in post-Brexit measurement. (laughs) But Burns proclaims him to be the fattest thing he's ever seen, leading Mars to finally eject Burns from her house and tackle Homer to stop him from swallowing a whole can of whipped cream. This causes Mars to doubt her ability until a letter arrives, which is read in an accent that I cannot possibly replicate, 
but I'm still going to try. Go for it. Dear Marge, thanks for the fab painting of yours truly. I hug it on me wall. You're quite an artist. In answer to your question, yes, we do have hamburgers and fries in England, but we call French fries chips. Love, Ringo. Is he from Dudley, Ringo Starr? Well, my dad is, so that's probably why that's happening. <laughs> I think that's where you've gone. P.S. Forgive the lateness of my reply. <laughs> With Ringo and Homer behind her, she gives it a crack, and we cut to the unveiling of what turns out to be a nude painting of Burns. Marge explains her angle, and the artificionados buy the motivation. As, unexpectedly, does Mr Burns, who is just glad she didn't make fun of his genitalia, although Marge thinks she did. And that's it. Mm. Really good one, Matt. It's so dense as well, because when we turned it on just then, I went, oh, yeah, it's from Mount Splashmore one. And it goes, okay, Mount Splashmore, Homer getting stuck in a pipe, so you've got the whole weight loss thing going there, and then they stumble across the A-plot in the loft, and then you've got to have Marge painting and work in Ringo Starr as well. There's a lot going on. I feel like the structure of this is what a lot of modern-day Simpsons tries to do and misses. It's especially in that sort of transitional period of sort of season 12 or 13. You'll find they have a, an opening section that they try to tie into a bigger plot. What actually happens is they go seven minutes into the show doing something that's never referenced again and then have to fit the plot into the remaining 13 minutes. Oh, right, okay. Um, so it's almost like it's a trick that they get worse at as time goes on. Um, but yeah, it's 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 so it's so well packed, so well structured. It's not quite as laugh a minute as some of the episodes we've seen this season. But you know, I, I think it's a very good one. Yeah, and there's some fantastic animation, especially when Homer gets stuck in the tube and you see the little kid's arms and legs sort of go out <laughs> to the side of him. It's, yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Weight loss, though, I mean, dieting in general, this, this particularly hits home to me. I spent most oh, of this, this year on a diet, and it is... I think Homer's emotions here are, are valid, very valid. Okay, um, yeah. And also, the, the kind of... The effectiveness of mechanical scales has not got any better in the oh, time no. since this, um, this episode was aired. They're, they're still all back and forth. Yeah, yeah. So, would you like to hear about some character debuts? Sure. Mr. Lombardo. Voiced by John Lovitz, at whom I've already aimed some complimentary superlatives, so I won't go back through all that here. Not much to say about the flamboyant, very quotable character. Another triumph, some would say. Mm -hmm. uh, except that he does make a few fleeting cameos later, all of which I think are non-speaking, including an appearance in the Simpsons movie. Oh, does he? Yeah, apparently okay. so. I, I didn't notice him, to be honest. No, me neither. But there we go. Um... And we've also got Ringo Starr. Mm. And like Tony Bennett, he appears as himself. So he's a Simpsons character, and I can burn some time on a career retrospective. One that will doubtlessly get us eeled up a treat by listeners as I'm bound to get something horribly wrong and offend some of our listeners by pointing out his foibles. Mm. So, where do I start? Well, deluded Brexiteer Ringo... <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, I don't, I don't mean to be rude about him. I really don't. I do. So, um... <laughs> So let, let me just try that again. Let me just try that again. So, disowner of his own city of birth, Ringo. No, no, that's, that's not fair. I mean, it's perfectly fair. Mm. But, but, but anyway, okay, so right. Let me give it another go. Okay. <laughs> drummer, Ringo. Actually, 
I don't mean that last one, because it's not even slightly true. Ringo, or Ringo, as Mr. Burns hilariously pronounces it, Real name Richard Starkey, though I won't use his official title as he has been honoured by the royal family and they are a parasitic anachronism, was a professional drummer before he joined the Beatles, including several years with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, who were arguably the biggest band in Liverpool before being eclipsed by the Beatles after Ringo defected in August 1962. Fun story. His first concert with the Beatles apparently played out to charts of Pete Forever, Ringo Never. Mm-hmm, yep which we'll revisit come Season 5, Episode 1, Homer's Barbershop Quartet. Making that very reference a technical Harrison mere minutes before the concept of a Harrison existed. <laughs> Shall we explain what a Harrison is for people who aren't memed up? Yeah, yeah, a Harrison is... Uh, so you may remember uh, in Homer's Barbershop Quartet, when the B-Sharps are performing on the roof of Moe's, George Harrison comes by in a, in a limo, rolls down the window, leans out the window and says... It's been done. Yes. And so any time a, a meme comes up that has been done before, people will reply with a still, usually from Frinkiak, of George Harrison saying, it's been done. Yeah. Hence, a Harrison. Yeah. And jokes that have been done are just known as Harrisons. Simple as that. Yeah. There's a bar around the corner from, from your flat called Harrisons. There is indeed. Yes. It, I, it, it doesn't <laughs> do brownies, which is really not? disappointing. No, I, I just want to go in there and just go up to the barman. Oi, it's been done. <laughs> We can make that wish come true as soon as we're finished recording, Tom. <laughs> so, um, Ringo was picked to join the Beatles because of his uh, pedigree and body of work to that date. Um, he's got a very technically adept style, very, very good timekeeper, very powerful drummer, but he's not big on roles, which tends to make people overlook his kind of metronomic um, qualities in favour of those with flashier but ultimately more fragile techniques. He's also one of the comparatively few drummers that played on his own band's recordings at the time, with a surprising amount actually being replaced by seasoned session drummers. Ringo's drumming was powerful enough to be picked up by the lower quality microphones at the time uh, in a good fidelity, which apparently was a, a rare quality in drummers of that time. Okay, makes sense. It's also worth noting that the oft-quoted, oft-misquoted in fact, Incidents of John Lennon saying that Ringo wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles is apocryphal. Whilst the gag was claimed by Jasper Carrot in the early 80s, a friend of the show Tim Worthington actually discovered that it was originally featured in a Radio 4 comedy called Radioactive from October 1981, as later verified by Beatles historian Mark Lewiso. But it's, it was never said by John Lennon. Oh, OK. So there we go. That's a nice bit of myth-busting. Yeah, well... I've occasionally got it in me. Starr is credited as the sole composer of exactly two Beatles songs. Can you name them, since we haven't done a quiz for you yet this oh, week? Oh, guilt. Um, I don't know enough about the Beatles. Uh, did he do I Am The Walrus? No, no, but there's an animal in one of them. Oh. Uh... Think wetter, more arms. Oh, well, Octopus's Garden. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I've no idea what the other one is. The other ones don't pass me by. Okay, don't know that one. Um, he collaborated on the writing of quite a few more. Um, he has had a lead vocal track on, I think, every one of their albums. I'm relatively sure about that. That's one of the facts I might get, uh, might get eeled for. Mm-hmm. Um, and went on to have a successful and lengthy solo career, as well as drumming for other acts, including... Um, hang on, just let me check my notes here. 
yes, that would be uh, that would be John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Yoko Ono. Oh, not them again. His character model in this episode is apparently based on his appearance in the Beatles' animated feature Yellow Submarine. He was enthusiastic to perform the part, but this came with the usual prima donna demands. Not quite as bad as Paul McCartney's usual directive that you may not look directly upon him, but still pretty bad. I'll quote Matt Groening here for context. Okay. We were so excited that we got Ringo Starr coming in to do the show, and we recorded him over at the complex in West Los Angeles. We were given a list of rules about what we couldn't do to Ringo, such as don't touch him, don't approach him, and don't ask for his autograph. But of course, when he shows up in this big limo, Brian, just interrupting the quote here to say that this is Brian K. Roberts, the credited writer for the episode, brings out a big poster and asks him to sign it. <laughs> Apparently he hadn't been told about the demands, but I like to think he had and charged his arm anyway because it's more entertaining. <laughs> Ringo is our first Beatle on The Simpsons, with George Harrison later launching a thousand reaction memes with his appearance in Season 5, Episode 1, Homer's Barbershop Quartet. Yep. A Harrison in itself from the perspective of being the second Beatle on the show. And me mentioning it is a Harrison as I mentioned it earlier in the show. Indeed. Just helping people to get, get to grips with it with a few practical examples here. <laughs> Paul McCartney will then turn up to sell his wife's sausages in Season 7, Episode 5, Lisa the Vegetarian. Still waiting for John and Stuart to make their appearances. They're really letting the site down at present. Let's face it, being dead didn't stop McCartney from appearing. Hey. <laughs> and now on to some did you knows. Okay. Homer's training montage is a homage to and is soundtracked by music that is similar to but legally distinctive from that used in Rocky. And his line, as God as my witness, I'll always be hungry again, is a play on the very similar line from Gone with the Wind, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. Mm, yeah. And completing a treble of Homer film references, the music that plays as he approaches the weighing scales is similar to, but legally distinctive from, the main theme from The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Yeah. The stairs leading up to H2O are drawn in reference to the MC Escher etching Ascending and Descending. Oh, I didn't even notice it was an Escher thing. Yeah. Oh, I missed that. Or Crazy Stairs, as Stewie from Family Guy calls it, and thus is how I always identified the art. <laughs> For some reason, it never occurred to me they had any other name, but of course it does, and that is what it was. Yep. It is fair to say that I am not a highbrow man. And finally, Bart and Lisa's very compelling and repetitive persuasion technique will be referenced, and indeed threatened, as leverage to get a pool in Season 6, Episode 1, Bart of Darkness. Yeah. I wonder how they recorded that. I, I wonder if... They recorded it once and just played it over and over again, or if they recorded the whole thing. Do you know what I mean? It's eerily identical if they did do it mm. all those times. So I'm, I'm erring towards it being recorded once and played repeatedly. Yeah, okay. Do you know what? If, if we could only... If we could ask Yardley Smith and Nancy Cartwright one question, it would be, <laughs> Nancy, why are you a Scientologist? Oh, but the second one would be, did you loop that? Okay. I might tweet at Yardley Smith later. You never know. Yeah, worth a try. Uh -huh. Worth a try. Ask her about maximum overdrive while you're there. <laughs> Maybe. And now the history. Oh, the history bit, yes. So, again, once in a, in a huge leap, we're off to the history bit. So I'm talking about Georgia, the former Soviet state. So population-wise, it's pretty small. Just four million 
but location-wise, it's at a real crossroads. To the west is the Black Sea, a large body of water whose coastline plays host to some very powerful countries. As well as Georgia, its east coast is part of Russia, including the resort of Sochi, home to the 2014 Winter Olympics. Ah. The south coast of the Black Sea belongs to Turkey, while on the west coast there's Bulgaria and Romania. And the north coast is part of Ukraine, with a highly controversial exception of the Crimean Peninsula, annexed by Russia in 2014 following a disputed referendum. Georgia itself is bordered by the Russian Federation to the north and east, Turkey to the south, and to the southeast by Armenia and Azerbaijan, both former Soviet states as well. So hopefully it's no surprise that Georgia has been fought over for centuries, with the Russian and Ottoman empires, and later of course the Soviets, vying for control. The Georgian people have been around for a long time. They have their own language and script that dates back to the 5th century. There's some debate around the origins of the name Georgian. An obvious explanation is that it stems from St George, the patron saint of Georgia. Indeed, the image is everywhere, featuring prominently on the coat of arms, where he can be seen on horseback slaying the mythological dragon. Also, the current flag of Georgia is basically the flag of England, with four other St George's crosses in the four corners. That just seems greedy. Yeah, it's basically the flag of England uh, on steroids, basically. (laughs) If a flag can be on steroids. (laughs) However, there is an ancient Greek word, Georgios, which means farmer. So it could be derived from that. In fact, the region has long been noted for agriculture, in particularly viticulture. Indeed, wine has been cultivated in Georgia since around 6000 BC, and today Georgia produces 86 million bottles of wine per year. So, on to a brief history of Georgia, and I know you love a good royal epithet or two, and there are some doozies in here. Oh, you can't, you can't hear it by rubbing my hands together with glee. <laughs> so, as you might expect, being in such a volatile region, the area that is now Georgia has a very complicated ancient history, with the Greeks and Persians all getting involved. The ancient Greeks knew of the region of Colchis, which along with Iberia, not to be confused with the Iberian Peninsula, you know, where Spain and Portugal are, would go on to be part of the early Georgia kingdoms. In the Greek legend of Jason and the Argonauts, the Golden Fleece is located in Colchis. Ah, okay. Alexander the Great's army stopped just short of Iberia, and Iberia and Colchis were not incorporated into his vast empire. Around the turn of the millennium, the region was fought over by the Romans, Persians and Armenians. Around the year 320, Iberia adopted Christianity as its state religion. It was introduced by St Nino of Cappadocia. History doesn't recall if he considered chief hydrological and hydrodynamical engineer a calling. (laughs) During the time of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. The capital Tbilisi, which sits more or less slap bang in the middle of Georgia was founded around 450 AD. It's got a good founding story, and you know I love them. So according to legend, the Iberian king Vactang I was out hunting in the forest with his hawk. The hawk caught a pheasant, and in a struggle, both the hawk and the pheasant fell into a hot spring and burned to death. The king was suitably impressed, for some reason, and chose to found the city there. The name Tbilisi roughly translates into warm location. So, yeah. Right. I don't get that story myself. Oh no, my hawk is dead. It's it, it's had this horrible death. I know, I'll found a city here. Perfect. <laughs> it's what Hawkey would have wanted. Yeah. 
In 592, Iberia was divided up between the Byzantines, or Byzantines if you wish, and Persians, but soon after the foundation of Islam, an Arab army moved north and occupied the region, making Tbilisi an emirate. Around the 8th century, the prominent Bagrationi family, which always sounds like a sort of pasta to me. Yeah. Bagrationi. But anyway... They gained a foothold of power, and their dynasty would rule Georgian kingdoms for centuries to come. In AD 888, Adonase IV took the title King of the Iberians. And there's a lot of intermarrying between powerful families around this time. In 994, the King of Iberia known as Bagrat the Simple... Ooh, that's not a good epithet to have, is it? Well, apparently his epithet comes from how youthful he was. So it's meant to be very much an affectionate term. He was a simple man enjoying simple pleasures. Right. Okay. Yeah, maybe just through time's cruel lens, that doesn't seem as uh, complimentary yeah, yeah. these days. Exactly. So he died in 994, leaving the throne to Bagrat III. He later inherited the kingdom of Abkhazia, and he ruled a unified kingdom. So you know, it was all building up. He then pushed east, incorporating the region of Kakheti Hereti. By this point the Bagrationi had become rather large. So to ensure that his son George would succeed him, he invited all his cousins to a grand family meeting, then had them all thrown in prison. Yeah. Like you do. Yeah, that's very of its time. Mm -hmm. So after George inherited the throne, he moved to expand George's territory further. The Byzantines were bogged down in a war against the Bulgars, on the other side of the Black Sea, so George took the opportunity to invade the nearby region of Teo, which at the time was under Byzantine control. However, once the Byzantines were victorious in Bulgaria, they fought back against the Georgians. After a two-year war, they signed a peace treaty which saw Teo return to Byzantine control, and George's three-year-old son Bagrat was taken hostage as part of the deal. Right. That doesn't sound like something you'd put in a deal. No, but that's what happened. So he went off to Constantinople at the age of three. And for three years, he lived there before being returned to Georgia. And two years later, his father died, making Bagrat the fourth king at the age of eight. And he became king in 1027. And he reigned until 1072. If you can't do the maths quickly enough, that's 45 years. That is a good innings for a king at that stage. Yeah, it's a ridiculously long reign, especially for the time. So his reign saw a new threat face Georgia, and that was the Seljuk Turks. So they built a huge empire in Central Asia, and first came across the Georgians in 1060. They laid waste to a lot of southern Georgia in what's known as the Great Turkish Invasion, before the Seljuks and Georgians signed a peace treaty in 1079, where the Georgians were required to pay a yearly tribute. Then, in 1089, King David IV came to power at the age of 16. He quickly reorganised the army and created a peasant militia in order to fight the Seljuks. Then came the First Crusade, which saw Pope Urban II raise an army to assist the Byzantine Empire against the Seljuk Turks and recapture the Holy Land. David took advantage of the Seljuks' weakened position and... In 1118, his forces had retaken most of the Georgian lands, leaving only Tbilisi as a Seljuk enclave. In 1121, the Seljuks fought back, with the Sultan Mahmud declaring jihad and sending a huge army to Georgia. Although the Georgians were heavily outnumbered, so the Seljuks had hundreds of thousands of troops and the Georgians had tens of thousands, the Georgians defeated the Seljuks at the Battle of Didgori. 
Having gained a decisive victory, the Georgians took Tbilisi the next year, meaning that for the first time in centuries Tbilisi was under Georgian control, and David made it their capital. This sparked the start of the Georgian Golden Age. David continued to expand Georgian territory, becoming king of Armenia in 1124. He also increased the influence of the Orthodox Church by constructing churches and cathedrals throughout Georgia. For these reasons, he is considered Georgia's greatest king and earned the epithet David the Builder. Brother of Bob, I assume. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that as an epithet. That is good. You know, it's, it's not quite as good as, uh, what was it, the Pope Hater or whatever we had uh, last time. Like that. It's, uh, the, uh... Yeah, David the Builder. Yeah. All right, Dave, what are you working on at the moment? <laughs> Sticking up a cathedral, Bob, all right? So anyway, David the Builder died in 1125, leaving Georgia in a very powerful position. His dynasty continued to preside over a successful country, but the most notable monarch in his line was Queen Tamar, David's great-granddaughter. She expanded Georgian control into an empire which stretched from the Crimean Peninsula and the south coast of the Black Sea in the west to the Caspian Sea in the east. She once again saw off Turkish invaders and ruled until her death in 1213, and she earned the epithet the Great. Shortly after Queen Tamar died, Georgia faced a new threat, this time from the east, the Mongols. They swept in and conquered most of the Georgian territory. What was left agreed to pay tribute, and the Mongols would dominate Georgia for centuries. This dominance was eventually ended by George V, who, for driving the Mongols out, earned the epithet the Brilliant. <laughs> so even more bombastic than the Great. The, the Brilliant. Superb. To be fair, you had to be pretty good to drive the Mongols out. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they were the, uh, the Manchester city of invading forces. <laughs> Indeed. As time wore on, Georgia became fragmented, and towards the end of the 15th century, it became a battleground, as Ottoman Turks and Safavid Iran, otherwise known as Persia, and I'm not going to try and say Safavid too many times, fought over it. Around the end of the 18th century, yet another power came to prominence, this time from the north, and that's Russia. So by 1724, Iran had descended into civil war, and the Ottomans and Russians signed the Treaty of Constantinople that split Georgia in two. Just ten years later, however, the Persians regrouped and took pretty much all of Georgia. They would remain in control until 1747, when the leader of the Persians, Nadar Shah, was assassinated. The remaining Georgian kings took advantage of the political instability and asserted their independence. In 1783, Georgia signed the Treaty of Georgievsk with Russia. This ensured that Russia would protect Georgia and the Bagratoni family, who was still around, would stay in power. But in exchange, all Georgian royal appointments would have to be confirmed by the Russian Tsar, effectively making Georgia a vassal state of Russia. However, four years later, Erikla, the king of Georgia, signed a separate treaty with the Persians. The Russians were nonplussed by this and withdrew their troops. When, in 1795, a new war started between Russia and Persia, the Persian Shah Agha Muhammad Khan saw the Georgians as treacherous follow their signing of the Treaty of Georgievsk with the Russians and raised Tbilisi to the ground. Which goes to show you can't please everyone. <laughs> I know they're between a rock and a hard place, but uh, yeah. So, in 1801, Ekele died and a war of succession followed. One of the claimants to the throne called for Russia to intervene, and the Tsar Paul I did so by decreeing that Georgia was to become part of the Russian Empire. The Russians dethroned anyone who had a claim to the throne and installed a military government. 
The Russians continued to fight the Persians until 1813, when the signing of the Treaty of Golistan brought the fighting to a close and finalised the borders. The territory of modern-day Georgia was established, but under dominance by the Russian Empire. The latter half of the 19th century saw great social change in Russia. Both in Russia and Georgia, society was comprised of rich landowners and indentured servants known as serfs. Serfdom was abolished in the Russian Empire in 1861 and in Georgia shortly afterwards. There's also a growing nationalist movement and Marxism was taking hold. In 1878, a baby by the name of Yosip Bessarionis Z. Zhugasvili was born in Gori in the east of Georgia. He would go on to be the world's most famous Georgian. Now, do you know who he was? Well, obviously the name rings a massive bell. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I've absolutely no idea, Tom. Well, Eosib might give you some sort of clue. Because mm. Eosib sounds a bit like Joseph. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I thought yeah. you were going to say it was shortened to Seb. No, no, no. So, so Stalin... Joseph Stalin was born in 1878 of in Georgia. Of course he was. It all lines up, yes. Yeah, yeah. So he would go on to become easily the world's most famous Georgian. So while the imperial Romanov dynasties showed no signs of relinquishing power in Russia, socialism became more popular there. In 1898, the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, or SDLP, was founded. In 1903, there was a difference of opinion as to how the parties should be run and the party decided to split. So at their conference, 54% of the delegates voted for Vladimir Lenin's proposals on how to run things, and the remainder voted for his opponent, Julius Martov. Followers of Martov became known as the Mensheviks, meaning minority, and Lenin's followers were known as the Bolsheviks, meaning majority. So if you've ever wondered where the term Bolshevik comes from... Oh, it just literally means majority. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, Bolshevik sense means great, like the Bolshoi Ballet. Although it's great meaning, as in many pounds and pence, I'm using it in the quantitative sense. Rather than the pejorative sense. Exactly. Right, okay. I spent far too long writing that. (laughs) It was worth every second. (laughs) So, in an attempt to placate the Russian population, Tsar Nicholas II introduced a smattering of democracy. Following the revolution of 1905, the state Duma was created with the Socialists being the largest party. By this point, Stalin had established himself as a Georgian Bolshevik and was elected by the local party to be a delegate to their conference in St. Petersburg. He had many escapades of the Russian Empire, which included bank robbery and various escapes from exile, but he wouldn't be back in Georgia for some time. The early 20th century in the Russian Empire was dominated by the rise of socialism and the events that led up to the First World War. Following the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, A complicated series of events led to Russia declaring war on Germany. The Ottomans were allied with the Germans and made an advance on the Caucasus towards Georgia and Armenia. An absent Tsar and a court dominated by Rasputin, the Mad Monk, that's one hell of a story, need to come back to that one later, led to the October Revolution of 1917. The Tsar and his family were executed by the Bolsheviks and Russia was plunged into a bloody civil war. Many outlying territories of the Russian Empire, including the Baltic states, took the opportunity to declare their independence. Georgia was one of them, declaring independence on May 26th, 1918. Shortly after the end of the First World War, Georgia and Armenia fought a short border war over the region of Lorry. Georgia's independence didn't last, and in February 1921 it was invaded by the Red Army. The Soviets massively reorganised the region following the devastation of the First World War and the Armenian Genocide. 
which did happen. Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan were forcibly incorporated into the Transcaucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic. What? Which just trips off the tongue, doesn't it? So the next year it became one of the states that signed the Treaty of the Creation of the USSR, along with Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. And that's also very important to how the Soviet Union ended, but I'll be covering that on a future show. Mm. So under the Soviets, Georgia suffered terribly. Although Stalin was manoeuvring himself up through the ranks of the Soviet Union, cementing his power after Lenin died in 1924, his home country of Georgia did not receive any special favours. Tens of thousands were executed or deported. A nationalist uprising of 1924 was put down with the help of the Georgian secret police, led at the time by one Levrenti Beria, another Georgian and a real nasty piece of work. Beria would become secretary of the Georgian Communist Party in 1931, and for the whole of the Transcaucasian SFSR the following year. In 1936, the rather artificial Transcaucasian SFSR was dissolved. Because basically you've got three countries that really don't get on with each other. Mm. So at this point, Stalin had cemented central Soviet control over the entire USSR, so the constituent republics were practically redundant anyway. So, you know, it doesn't really matter how the territory's organised because Stalin's in control of it. So during the Second World War, the Caucasus and their oil fields were a target for the Nazis, but they didn't get as far as Georgia. Over the course of the war, Georgia committed 700,000 troops to the Red Army, of which half were killed. You know, remember Georgia's population now is just under 4 million, so it's a huge chunk of people. On the other hand, approximately 30,000 Georgians fought for the Nazis, forming the Georgian Legion. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So after the war ended, you can imagine what happened to them. Yes. Yes. Yes, only too well. Yeah. So after the war, Stalin took revenge on ethnic groups that he considered to have collaborated with the Nazis, and tens of thousands were deported to Siberia. After Stalin died in 1953, Nikita Khrushchev took over and went about a policy of de-Stalinisation. So there's this weird duality with Stalin's legacy, even today. In a 2019 survey, you know, this year, 70% of Russian surveyed said that Stalin played a positive role for Russia. Okay. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Well. Fair, fair, what? Well, well, he was on the winning side of, uh, of the Second World War. I, th- I think some people have got this idea that if he didn't take the action that he did take, then the Nazis would have got to Moscow and that would have been the end of it. Who am I to judge? Yeah, I'm going to leave that one alone, I yeah. think. So, in Georgia, on March 9th, 1956, around 100 students were killed while demonstrating against de-Stalinisation after tanks opened fire on them. I keep thinking you're saying de-Stalinisation. I know, I know. My phone keeps thinking I'm writing (laughs) de-Stalinisation. As well as a policy of de-Stalinisation, Khrushchev also had a policy of decentralisation, handing more power to the republics rather than dictating absolutely everything from Moscow. Now, Tbilisi is a thousand miles away from Moscow, so this autonomy led to Georgia having a thriving black market alongside the Soviet command economy under the premiership of Vassil Mahavanadze. In order to combat the corruption, the Soviets made Eduard Shevardnadze first secretary of the Georgian Communist Party. Now, Shevardnadze is probably the most important person in Georgia's modern history. So while in charge of Soviet Georgia, he did some pretty extraordinary things to fight corruption. There's a story where one day he closes the borders to all exports. Basically a test of the border force, like, like can they actually do that? And he then dresses up as a peasant and drives out of the country in a truck full of tomatoes. 
just to see if, if he could do it. And this supposedly exposed the corruption of the border force, and he had them all sacked. The head of state... Can you imagine the Queen testing the... <laughs> testing British security by disguising herself as a lorry driver and, <laughs> and driving out of Calais with a truck full of apples? I mean, I can't, but I wish I could. Yeah. So another thing he did was he got all high-ranking officials to show him their left arms... And anyone shown to be wearing a Western watch was punished. He also had a positive impact on that most important of Soviet metrics, grain production. He carried out an experiment in the Abasha region, whereby if a grain farmer exceeded their quota, they would be allowed to keep some of their crop. And this proved to be so successful, but it was adopted throughout the Soviet Union. Having such a great track record by Soviet standards, Shevardnadze was promoted in 1985 by Mikhail Gorbachev, to the post of Minister for Foreign Affairs. This made him one of the most powerful men in the Union, and he presided over the momentous events of the late 80s and early 90s, including the reunification of Germany. However, all was not well. He protested against Soviet troops putting down an uprising in Georgia on April 9th, 1989, and he feared the influence of hardliners, resigning in December 1990, stating, dictatorship is coming. He was rather prophetic about that event, and, you know, I keep banging on about it because it's the attempted Soviet coup, which was just months away in this timeline, and I can't wait to get to it. So that brings us up to April 1991, and I think it's worth reminding ourselves what the world looks like at this time. So after the Second World War, the Soviets set up a sphere of influence in Central Europe, dominating the politics of countries such as Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, and of course East Germany. They also forcibly incorporated many countries into the fringes of the USSR, such as the Baltic states and, indeed, Georgia. As the effects of Gorbachev's glasnost and perestroika took hold, more and more countries demanded to be free of Soviet influence. By April 1991, the Baltics were independent, Poland had removed its communist government, Germany was reunited, and Nikolai Ceausescu had been dead for over two years. With the USSR crumbling, and the events of April 9, 1989 still clear in people's memories, the people of Georgia called for their independence. An open, multi-party election took place on the 28th of October 1990, with 250 parliamentary seats up for grabs. The Free Georgia bloc won 155 out of these seats, and the bloc's leader, Zviad Gamsakherdia, became head of the Supreme Council of Republic of Georgia. He quickly organised a referendum on independence for March 31st, 1991, which passed with 98.9% of the vote. Oof. I'd love to know who voted against it. So a week later, on April the 9th, 1991, two days before Brush With Greatness first aired, Georgia declared its independence from the Soviet Union. That, of course, is by no means the end of the story. The rest of the world didn't recognise Georgia's independence until the Soviet Union dissolved on Christmas Day 1991. The Georgian government wanted to have as little to do with Russia as possible and declined to join the Commonwealth of Independent States, the successor to the Soviet Union. Gamsakurdia was elected president on May 26, 1991, with 86% of the vote. However, he was seen as erratic and authoritarian, and opposition nationalists moved against him, aided by paramilitary groups who had free access to a lot of military hardware left by Soviet forces as they moved out. That was a theme of the time. You had um, Soviet armies were in control of all these countries that were on the outskirts of the Union, and they just packed up and left. When these countries declared independence, just, just left all their weaponry lying around. Eventually, 
Gamsakhurdia was removed by a military coup and he fled to Russia in January 1992. Once again enter Edouard Shevardnadze. He was made Speaker of the House of Parliament in March 1992. In Abkhazia, a separatist region in the west of Georgia, a civil war broke out between his and Gamsakhurdia's supporters before Russia intervened on Shevardnadze's side. Because after all, he's an old Russian ally. Mm. Gamsakhurdia died at the end of 1993 and Georgia agreed to join the CIS, bringing that particular chapter to a close. In 1995, Sherid Navse narrowly avoided being killed by a car bomb. Shevardnadze's time in government was marked by allegations of vote rigging, culminating in the presidential elections of 2003. These were considered to be rigged by international observers, and they sparked the Rose Revolution and mass demonstrations caused Shevardnadze to resign, and Mikhail Saakashvili was elected in his place. I think I just about remember the Rose Revolution. Rings a bell. It's yeah. all them roses. Yeah. And because of that revolution, Georgia changed its flag to the sort of St. George's Cross on steroids that I was talking about mm. earlier. Before, it was really boring. It was just a burgundy sort of dark purple colour with a square in the canton. The top half of the square was black, the bottom half was white, or maybe the other way around. Very minimalist. Very minimalist, very minimalist. Uh, apparently it was the colour of wine. Oh. Not exactly that inspirational flag, but hey, it wasn't Soviet, so people didn't mind at the time. So anyway, so since then, relations between Georgia and Russia over Abkhazia and South Ossetia remained tense. In 2008, Russia intervened militarily and recognised both regions as being separate countries, although no one else in the world does. So in future, Georgia has ambitions to join the EU... Because unlike some people in this country, they know that EU membership is a good idea. Oh, ending with a stinging barb there. Mm, indeed. And that was Georgia. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to visit Tbilisi. I'd love to do a little tour. Because you can visit Baku in Azerbaijan, then go on to Yerevan in Armenia, which apparently has this huge mountain behind it. I can't remember what the mountain's called. And then, yeah, then go on to Tbilisi, where you can see the... Hot springs where that hawk and pheasant died in that epic struggle. Do, do they give you birds to burn? Or I've no else? idea. I've no idea. <laughs> but yeah, I'd really, love, I'd really love to visit that region of the world because it sounds fascinating. Agreed. Agreed. So I think that just about brings us to an end for this instalment. Don't forget that you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. But this is a serious message to everybody listening to our update right now. I'm warning you with peace and love. We have too much to do, so no more fan mail. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and no objects to be signed. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and make sure you stay tuned next week because it's... The Simpsons episode we're going to be covering is one I have been both longing for and dreading since we started doing this show because it's my favourite ever episode. Actually, second favourite ever episode. It's Lisa's Substitute. Excellent. So I'm going to need to see if I can keep it together for that one. So all that and a grown man crying when we join you next on <laughs> Retrospecticus. Thank you very much and preferably leave us a five-star review wherever you possibly can. See you soon. Cheers, everyone. Bye.